Billy Piper, Patrick Lacey, S.E. Howard, Waylon Jordan, and Jeremy Herbert. Five acclaimed authors of horror and dark fiction. Their twisted tales appeared in the acclaimed horror anthology Worst Laid Plans from Grindhouse Press. Now, their tales of vacation terror are coming to the big screen in a feature film adaptation from Genre Blast Films. Five acclaimed genre filmmakers will bring these stories to life. Samantha Koyesnik, John Hale, Vanessa Yonta Wright, Michael Escobedo, and Jeremy Herbert. Worst Laid Plans. Now crowdfunding on Indiegogo. This is one vacation you'll be dying to take. <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace, now a part of the Silver Shamrock Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, and all other major platforms, which now includes YouTube. That's right, you can now watch your favorite episodes, including this one. Just search for Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today, we're joined by author, screenwriter, producer, and publisher, Richard Chismar. Say hello, Richard. Hey, everybody. And before we jump into the uh, baseline question, now, I know that you are a Baltimore Ravens fan. Uh, the only team to be named after a uh, the Godfather of Horror's poem, The Raven, Curious what you think about Brady, man. I'm 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 really oh. curious if you're into this. I loathe. Uh, trust me, I uh, there was no one who uh, despised Brady more than me um, when he was with the Patriots. I, I my hate has dulled. Um, <laughs> I will begrudgingly admit that he is the best to play that position. Um, what he did this year is pretty amazing. Um, but I still think MVP of that game should have been. Uh, the defense, their, especially their defensive line. They oh, were amazing. Um, and I had a feeling it was going to happen. I, uh, you know, I, uh, I told some friends before the game, I said, Tampa's got the best defensive line and the best offensive line. And that scares me. I, you know, you can cut a team down if both of those are playing well. What got you into horror? Oh, you know what? I just right from the beginning, I was attracted to that. I mean, the earliest memories I have of, of being scared are like uh, probably a lot of people's, you know, probably similar to a lot of people. You know, the Wizard of Oz, the the witch, those damn monkeys, uh, <laughs> a haunted forest. I remember just really digging that. But at the same time, being terrified. Um, Chee Chee Bang Bang, man, they, that that kid, that kidnapper with the with the net. Oh my God, I had nightmares, but at the same time, anytime it was on television, I had to watch it. Um, 
so yeah, I was just naturally attracted to that. And even, you know, I remember my, I, I grew up in a big family. I'm the youngest of five and everyone in the family was a reader, uh, mm-hmm. to a, to a pretty decent extent. And, uh, so, so library trips were a regular thing. And, uh, I, even in the beginning, I remember, you know, just kind of keying in on the scary stuff, Halloween, you know, books for kids and that kind of thing. And then just grew up through, you know, it kind of grew through there, Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone comics, the horror comics, that Alfred Hitchcock presents. And then at some point pretty early on, um, you know, I discovered King and that kind of was the, was the, uh, the springboard, but yeah, I was, I was the kid who, you know, would be outside on Saturday playing wiffle ball or, or, uh you know, throwing rocks at my friends. And then as soon as noon came on, I had to run, run in on Saturdays to watch creature double feature. And then I'd go out as soon as that was done. So yeah, I've I've been, I've been a weirdo pretty much from the start. (laughs) Pretty much take over. Yeah. You're in good company. (laughs) I figured. I love that mix of media too. You know, you, you, you had the, uh, pulled the horror out of, you know, mainstream movies, the chitty, chitty, bang, bang, wizard of Oz, kind of uh, digging into not necessarily the uh, the hopeful parts, the musical parts, but the the scary parts. I, I think it takes a certain mindset to watch, you know, a, a cinematic classic like The Wizard of Oz and say, it's the damn monkeys that stick oh, with me. Yeah. No, I mean, those those were the things that that haunted me. And I remember even watching my older brother is uh, a big fan of the uh, Abbott and Costello movies. And I even remember those, the ones, you know, meets the mommy, meets Frankenstein, all those. It, uh, I wasn't there for the laughs. I was there for, you know, to be scared right along with them. So, yeah, like I said, what, for whatever reason, I just uh, I came out that way. I love uh, having Costello, big fan of those guys. I, You know what, man? It's because of those monster mashups where I kind of like them more than the Stooges. And I never got big into the Marx Brothers. I got into, uh, what's his name, Buster Keaton. I, I liked him. Old silent film guys, but yeah, the Buster, um, Evan Costello films, they're, they're so funny. They really are. They really are. And you know what? When you're a kid, they're pretty scary, too, some of them. <laughs> yeah. um, before we continue, uh, I want to tell you that, uh, I'll word how he said it. Tell Richard that old Ron said howdy. For those that don't know who Ron is, it's Ronald Kelly. I'm Kelly. I was going to say, you didn't even have to say the last name. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've known Ron forever. He uh, he was in in the magazine from the very beginning. I you know I was I was there when he sold his first book to Zebra Hindsight, and uh, I was bummed out when he quit you know writing for a while and elated when he came back. And I think probably about a month ago he he put some uh, he put some photos of some old uh, promotional bookmarks of his on uh, on social media, and I'm like, son of a bitch, I still have those. I, 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 I saw those, yeah. I follow them on Facebook, and uh, yeah, we talk about them every now. Well, we talk about them probably a lot. I don't, I, I don't keep track, but yeah, he's he's someone that we're kind of we're just talking about because we love the guy and his books, but we kind of hope that he gets this new following, and it sounds like he is. It sounds like he's getting a rekindling of that that uh, readership, and fair enough to say, maybe it's even more addicting than when it when he was younger because now he can talk to them a lot quicker. Yeah. I mean, it's so what's funny is, is I tell people all the time um, how different it was back then, you know, and I feel like the old guy saying, get out of my yard. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, he was there in the heyday with me of, you know, all the small press. So, you know, you could get your name out there by, 
by selling a bunch of your short stories to uh you know a bunch of the different small press uh magazines the the semi-pros like horror show and the uh and then the pros like you know night cry and, and twilight zone and and then anthology market was just booming so yeah ron was out there a lot but you're right he, there was no social media you know you couldn't put a face or, or a voice with uh with the, with the name and um yeah, I, he looks like he's having fun. You know, I, I saw a post of his recently where he talked about someone said uh, something about, you know, they, he needed to start writing novels again. And he's like, now nah, I'm having a good time writing short stories. And I was just like, you know what? Right on. Just it, it, whatever keeps you at the typewriter. And, um, you know, he, he he's such a good storyteller. So, you know, Ron, yeah. Ron can do whatever he wants. And, and in today's market where, you know, the flip side of what it was, there's not a there's not six or seven dozen magazines floating around out there. Um, there's not a bunch of big, a bunch of pro ones out there, but instead you have the internet and you have a way to reach these people yourselves. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the cool thing. So he'll, yeah, a storyteller as good as him. He'll be fine. He'll be, I think he'll gain that audience. And like you said, and then some, the essential six stuff was, uh, our first introduction to him. And, um, for that other podcast I mentioned, of Bearing the Dead, we're going to be reading Fear next uh, by him and talking about that with uh, Ken McKinley. Um, so we're excited for that. That'll be my first time reading Fear. Okay. Good book. Very I good. know you, James Newman, Brian Keene, a bunch of other guys that Brian and I look up to all talk highly of that book. So I got high expectations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm a... I'm a big Ronald Kelly fan, so I like everything he does. You know, that's the cool thing. He's he's an old-fashioned storyteller, which he'll tell you. Um, so I like the really traditional stuff, the, uh, you know, the southern fried stuff. But then he can write some just twisted, you know, nasty stuff that, you know, makes you want to look at him and say, Ron, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to be a good Tennessee boy. But, uh, yeah, now just a very talented guy. Now, the more I talk sorry, – sorry for cutting you off, Brian. It looked like you were about to ask something. But I, he, his answer just got me thinking – the more people we talk to, and I'm not saying it's a generational thing, but there's no hesitation with guys like you, uh, Joe Lansdale, um, even guys like Abino uh, or Keen, where you're just going to be like, this is my story, and I mean, you're going to like it or not. And nowadays, and I'm not knocking it, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but nowadays, their newer writers are hesitant at times to say... Uh, if they were to do a Jack Ketchum type book, you might catch a lot of guff for that. But you look at all the classics like The Exorcist or Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, and they are just, they are good. They're gut-wrenching. And uh, I'm curious if you have any comment on that. I don't really have a question, but... Yeah, you know, I, it's a, I, honestly, I think it's... it's, it's uh... You know, I, I think it, that that kind of you know mindset of of has existed all along. It's just I think it comes down to the individual writer's confidence. Um, you know, because when I was starting out, and certainly in those first you know however many years, you know, probably more than it should have been. You know, you speaking for myself, I did care what people thought. Now I didn't care. Um, I, you know, I wanted them to like it. Let's put it that way. You know, and 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 somebody could easily say, well, every every writer wants that, and and of course you do. I think every any writer at any stage of the game, whether you're Ronald Kelly or a newcomer or you're Steve King, yeah, you write it, you put it out there, you want people to like it and enjoy it. Um, but at some point, it does become, and it sounds a little cliche, but at some point, it does become more about you 
you know, finding satisfaction in the story, you being happy with the story. I know when I'm finished with the story, I, I get to the point, whether it's a book or a novella or a short story or a script where I get to that point where, and it's not just because I'm sick of it, which is certainly the case sometimes, but I get to the point where I'm like, okay, this story's done. I'm pleased with it. Hopefully you guys are also, but guess what? If you're not, tough shit <laughs> because I'm done with it. I'm not going back in again. And and again, it's not ego. It's not laziness. It's just, uh, I think when, once you get that certain level of confidence and self-belief um, and you're writing about things that are important to you, and that's certainly why it didn't apply to me in the beginning because I was writing just, you know, I was writing whatever came to mind, whatever I thought would sell, um, what a lot of newer writers do. And, and, and that's, I've, I've told people that over and over again, once I started writing what was really important to me, um, no matter how small a scope of a story or, or how, you know, twisty of a plot, it didn't matter. Once I started writing about things that, that mattered to me, that's when I kind of found my voice and, and started finding a readership. And I think that's so important, you know, just with the the hours that you invest in creating a story, you know, let's say it's something novel length, that's hundreds and hundreds of hours um, of creating, of of editing. And if you're, you know, specifically trying to cater it towards an audience and not doing something that you're interested in, you're going to grow to dislike it. You're going to kind of put your own voice in there anyway. Um, it, it's, it just, it's so necessary to just kind of do what you want to do with it to, to tell, well, to tell the story you want to read, you know, that age old adage of write the story that you want to read. Well, of course, because you're going to get bored to tears and you're, you're going to, you know, criticize your own work otherwise. Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of, that's exactly right. And I mean, I always kind of liken it to, you know, going to a party and, you know, some people are really good at small talk and kind of, you know, faking their way through. I suck at it. You know, I'm, I, you know, you're going to know right away if you're, if, if, you know, if there's somebody there who's full of himself or, you know, a bully or whatever, I, you know, he's going to know in a hurry. I'm just like, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I kind of just don't do that. I can't. And I never have. And it, the same thing applies to writing. It's just like, you know, I can't pretend. So I'd be like the worst person to, you know, I, to get, you know, there's been opportunities where, you know, you can make a decent amount of money, but you're writing about X or Y. And for me, I, I can't do it because I know what would happen. I'd cash the check, be all excited. And then I'd sit down to write about X and Y, you know, this, this movie character or this, you know, shared world thing. And I'd get 10 pages in and be like, Oh my God, I'm in trouble. Um, but other writers, you know, and, and it doesn't, you know, I'm not saying, Oh, I, you know, I'm not, that's not me looking down on like tie-ins and things like that. It's just a different mindset. And I, you know what, if I could, I would, cause it'd, it'd be nice to bank some of those checks, but I've just never been able to. Now, was there any ask this? This seems like a stupid question. I feel bad for asking it, but is there any aspect of that at all playing in Castle Rock with the original Gwendy story, or was it because you got to kind of create the lore and just play in that town? Yeah, no, because you know, and it's it's interesting because people have asked me. They're like, "Well, could you write in a, you know, and, and they, you know, they pick a, a different author who they know I really respect. You know, could I write in a Joe Lansdale world? You know what? I couldn't. As much as I'd love to write a Happen Leonard story with Joe, that's <laughs> like, oh my god, that'd be so much fun. But I couldn't do it because I've read those. I've read everything Joe's written. I've I've loved it to varying degrees, you know, but I, I I've yet to read something from Lansdale that I that I dislike. 
um, I've learned a lot from them, especially about dialogue and, and kind of taking some chances. And, and, you know, with Joe, sometimes the reader has to catch up a little bit because of just the way he tells a story. He doesn't give a damn if you're, it's not cookie cutter. It's not always A to B to C. Sometimes he skips B and C and goes right to D. Um, but that's how people are. You know, life's not neat and conversations aren't always neat and orderly. Um, and that's something I've learned from him. Um, but I, I couldn't write a Happen Leonard story with him. You know, I, uh, I number one, I don't I haven't retained enough of the knowledge of, of the characters. Um but if, you know, I pick up his new book and 10 pages in, I'm like, yeah, you know, there's like they're like old friends again. But whereas with Steve, because I grew up reading him um, right from the very beginning of, of kind of being a young adult and, and I've reread the books and uh, I've just, all, you know, I've been immersed in, in, in that Stephen King universe for so long that when that opportunity came, um, which was just mind blowing in itself. Yeah, I mean, but. So to answer your question, no, not at all. It was I, I, I experienced none of that. I just really experienced, in really short order, <clears throat> the uh, elation of being asked and having the opportunity to do that, and then very quickly right after that, just being completely terrified because I had the opportunity to do that, and and I realized, oh shit, <laughs> now what? So that that's that's about as truthful of a. Uh, description as I can give. I in one weekend I went from just being so excited, not telling anybody, and then finally telling my wife and kids to sitting down and going, I can't do this. I one hundred percent can't do this. And then starting to write and realizing, you know what, I can do this. You know? Um so yeah, no, it's actually a good question because, you know, people have kind of tiptoed around that before. Like, Rich, aren't you know uh, you're just playing in Steve's sandbox. And I'm like, yes, I absolutely am. You know, he invited me in and, and I've been able to hang and do it through uh, three books now. So I'm, yeah, I'm a lucky guy in that regard. How did that relationship start? Um, I sent, I sent up to Steve's office in Bangor right from the very beginning, issue number one of Cemetery Dance. So way back in December of 88, sent up a copy, you know, dear Mr. King, um, hope you like it. You're the reason I'm doing this, you know, all the gooey stuff. And, and, um, when issue two came out the next summer, I sent that up. Um, I sent up letters, you know, if you would ever send us a short story or, you know, that, you know, the whole thing that you do when you're 22 and too, too young to be, you know, too dumb to be scared and, and, <laughs> and all that. Um, and then at some point pretty early on his assistant, um, who back then was a really nice lady named Shirley. She sent me back a letter, um, you know, just saying Steve appreciated it. And <clears throat> the very first thing I really asked him was, uh, you know, other than I'm sure I asked for stories, but I asked if he would give us a promotional blurb for the magazine since she said he liked it. And he did right away, which was wonderful. And then I guess year three, like in 91, he sent us a copy of Chattery Teeth, um, an original short story to publish. And, and our relationship just kind of grew from there. Um, I think it was like 10 years later, he asked us to do From a Buick 8. So that was the first book. And then, um, you know, we did, you know, multiple other books after that. And then it, at some point, the business relationship just kind of turned into a friendship because we were, you know, we were emailing about business stuff and then we were emailing about personal stuff. And, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it was a strange thing to, to look up one day and realize that, uh, you know, I'm texting kind of my childhood hero and my literary hero, you know, about a 
Red Sox Orioles game and, and <laughs> giving him shit and he's giving me shit right back. And it's just like, yeah, this is this this is really happening. This is kind of cool. Yeah, you, you're in a very unique situation. Um, I from outside looking in, I I mean, you're friends with him. You publish him. You write with him. Uh Writing with him alone—that's that's a small camp to be in. It's his son, Peter Straub. Um, who else? Stuart O'Nan. Yeah, it's really just Stuart O'Nan with the baseball book, and they did a novella together, and then both sons and and Peter. Yep. So yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I, I know that because because there's been enough times when I'm like, okay, what what doesn't belong in this group? And I you know I go down. <laughs> And then there's my name, and people are always very kind. No, no, Rich, you do. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Enough people liked Gwendy that that I kind of feel like that now. But still, for quite a while, and still even now, you know, there are those days where I'm like, okay, what doesn't fit in this picture? So, yeah, very, very fortunate and grateful to him that he uh, that he, you know, that he dug my stuff enough to to trust me to do that. I hear imposter syndrome all the time, and I think it's fair to say anyone in your position would absolutely feel it. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is, I mean, I definitely felt it that weekend, like I described my emotions. And then it was that Monday, you know, because this all went down on a Friday where he sent me the manuscript, and we, we kind of emailed about it on a Thursday. And and uh, so that weekend was was pretty it was just like a roller coaster ride. It was alternating, alternating between just happiness and, and being, you know, wanting to puke. Um, so Monday, yeah, when I finally, you know, sat at the, uh, at the, uh, at the laptop and, and really started writing about, it, it happened pretty quickly. It was like a half an hour in and, and that was all gone. I was like, okay, I'm in Castle Rock. <laughs> I, I know this chick. Um, I know the town. Um, what I don't know, Bev Vincent will save me from myself because I'll send it to him to, to make sure I didn't make mistakes. And, uh, and from that point, and then I, I remember I finished a big chunk, like 10,000 words in, uh, in about two and a half days. And I remember thinking, if I sit there and I start to go over this, um, I'm never going to send it to him. I'm going to chicken out. So I just loaded it up and sent it. And I told him, I said, hey, this is, this is you know, a bit more than a first pass, but not much. Um, so I'm going to let you kind of read it raw so that, uh, so that, you know, otherwise you won't read it at all. And I, cause I know me and, uh, fortunately it was positive response and he, you know, batted it back to me with some more words on it. And then I did it to him and we just, uh, we had fun, you know, that was the key is, is, and I believe that's why there's been, you know, further, you know, uh, additional books is, is cause I think Steve had fun doing it too. So how was the process on uh, Magic Feather different? Um, you know what? Completely because, um, and I've told this story a few times, and I'm going to continue to tell it, and I always I always say I, there, there are people out there waiting for me to slip up and, and tell this story differently, and I'm like, it's not going to happen because this is really how it happened. Um, I had a dream. You know, when, when Button Box came out, people asked, will there be a sequel? Will there be more stories of Gwendy? And Steve's very uh, politically correct answer was always, well, uh, I'm, I'm not saying yes to a sequel, but I'm not saying no either. And I, just, <laughs> I thought, you know what, that's 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 Steve, you know, because he's, he's very kind and gracious. But, you know, he'll do what he wants because he's a busy man. His schedule, you know, is, is a mess and um, he gets pulled in 50 million different directions. So I certainly was never going to ask him. Um, but at some point I had a dream and I uh, – 
I just I woke up the next morning earlier than usual and I sent him a quick email that said, you know, I, I think I know what Gwendy's been doing. I think for you know, and I'm not a real political person, so it was even more bizarre. But it, I, I'm sure it was because of the you know what was had been in the news recently and all that. And uh, I, I just said, what if Gwendy is a newly elected member of Congress and she walks in her office one day and there's the button box? It's back after all these years. And uh, he wrote me back, and, and I went back to sleep because I remember I was up early. And, and when I woke up, I had an email waiting, and he said that is a brilliant idea. I'm going to be busy for the foreseeable future with Holly Gibney, but you should write it. And I thought, okay, that's cool. But I also, in my ultimate wisdom, I thought he meant you should write the first draft because I'm going to be busy. And then I'll come back and write the next draft. And then we'll do what we did the first time. We'll make it, you know, kind of one voice and, and, and have a lot of fun. So, so yeah, that's, that's an honest description of how it was born and, what my idea was all along was that I was going to write this, you know, longer piece, kind of like a short novel or a long novella, and he was going to come back and make me look, you know, brilliant. Um, I never would have. Uh, I mean, I, I brought I brought Castle Rock, the town, back, you know, after after uh, Needful Things, where you know half the town blew up and, and burned down. I kind of brought it back and, and referenced that. I brought back, uh, you know, the sheriff. Um, I never would have done all that. I, you know, I tell people all the time, I would not have had big enough cojones to do that if I didn't think Steve was going to put his own fingerprints on it. But when I sent him the, uh, the manuscript, when I was finished, he read it and, and essentially just said, now nah, rich, this is done. Cause you know, he's like, I have good news and bad news. Good news is you get to keep all the money. <laughs> and the bad news is because my email to him, flat out said, you know, take your time. I don't know what you're working on right now, but, you know, take as much time as you need. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do to the story. So, yeah, that that's how it happened. And uh, I, I still look back and think, I guess that's the only way it would have happened. I think that's so interesting that, you know, you, you, you were able to write a draft of that story. You were able to kind of have a freedom in that story because you – you know, thought there was a safety net there when it turns out it was just painted on the floor. You'd have gone splat if I, <laughs> well, that's what I, said. I said I never would have done it if I knew that I didn't have a parachute on my back. Yep. Oh, oh no, it would have been a number one. It would have been a completely different story, and um, and I don't even know. You talk, you know, I said playing in his sandbox. I, 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 I there would have been a handful of emails to him along the way saying, Steve, are you sure? Um, and instead it never happened. I just sat down and in six weeks it flowed out of me. And, and I remember being surprised that it, it all came out that quickly and I sent it to him. And then I just remember being doubly surprised when he was like, no, Rich, this one's all you. If you want me to, I'll edit it. And I was like, yes, please. So yeah, that was, that was another unique experience. And I look back at that and think, yeah, no parachute. I, like you said, if, if, if I had known that, forget it. That's, that's really cool. Now, I know you tend to kind of play it close to the chest, but is there anything you can tell us about uh, book three? Um, it's longer. It's, you know, it's, it's a legit short novel. It's uh, trying to think 300 something pages. Um, this one was Steve's idea. He came to me and he, I got a couple, you know, we text a lot, but it's, it's usually not about work. It's usually about what we're reading or a movie we just saw or, or, you know, he'll send me a trailer or baseball and, you know, now football once in a while. He's a Bucks fan now, of course. Um, but uh, 
you know, or it's about family or dogs. It's just, you know, it's just normal, regular life stuff. Um, but this time I, I got a text about Gwendy and then all of a sudden he said, what if this and what if that? And I was like, uh-oh. And so this time I was very clear. I said, you know, I wrote him back what I thought about it, added a few little possibilities myself. And I said, are you going to write this one with me? Are you going to write it by yourself? Uh, you know, something like that. And uh, he said, no, he said, I'll, you know. Uh, this happened over the summer, and I remember he said, you know, by September I should be able to dig in. And uh, instead, it was like the second week of August, he started texting again. And then by September, I already had the first chunk of the book, and <laughs> we were going back and forth. So, yeah, this this I can tell you, this time was his idea. Um, we wrote it the same way we wrote the first one, which we just traded. It, you know, we traded longer sections of, you know, page count and um, – you know, because it was a longer, more involved piece, you know, I, you know, we, we, in the first one, we had complete freedom to rewrite each other. And, and, you know, we did a sentence here, paragraph there. Um, yes, even I was dumb enough to, to say, Steve, I think this works better like this. Um, but, uh, with this, with this latest one, we really, you know, kind of dug in and, and without trying to blend it, it's just kind of the way it works. Cause you know, certain things had to be changed in order for the next section to work. Um, and it was just a lot of fun. I mean, I remember texting him and saying, you know, if every collaboration is like this, you know, uh, no wonder, you know, people, people should do this. It's good for the soul because it was almost like this little, uh, it was almost just like this challenging exercise where, you know, he wrote what he wrote and, and we weren't trying to write each other into corners or anything like that. Um, but we also beyond a really broad description, we didn't tell each other what we were doing. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, that was cool. You know, it was like, okay, you know, how am I going to pick up from where he, you know, the, the world's greatest storyteller just left the story and, and go in a way that, that is, you know, organic to the story and, and pushes the narrative and also doesn't make him, you know, vomit when he, when he opens my, my section of the manuscript. So it was cool that way, you know. So, yeah, I can tell you it's longer. Um, we had a blast. Um, I can tell you part of it takes place in Castle Rock again, but we also go to Derry, which I know will make people happy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, we still haven't, we have a cover, but we have, we're not ready to announce it yet. We're, we're still dealing with, with the, uh, you know, CD will do the the hardcover first and then gallery Simon Schuster will come and do a paperback after and, and audio and all that. So, but uh, pub date will be early next year. You know, we they don't want to have three Stephen King books in the same year, which is understandable. <laughs> so, uh, do <clears throat> Richard Bachman? Yeah. <laughs> it'll be, uh, so it'll probably probably be out like a, about a year from right now. You know, early February, something like that. Nice. That's cool. I'm glad to hear you guys are working together. You know, again, least of all, you know, because Stephen is involved, but also because I don't think that. Uh, you know, given what you told us about book two, where you wrote it in kind of a fearless way because you thought you had that uh, parachute on. Well, you know, it, th- this time, you know that the parachute's full of uh, silverware. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's good. It's good that you have that. <laughs> yeah, the difference with the, what's funny is the difference with this is uh, and, and you'll know it when you get the book um, or when you when you read. A, 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 I, I'm trying to think if we give it away in the promo copy. Yeah, I think we, we we give a certain amount of the plot away as usual, but uh, because of what Steve's idea was for this book and and where it takes place and how it takes place, it was still super. Um, you I kind of had no choice but to be fearless because 
because in the beginning there was nothing but fear. I remember thinking, oh, this is this is such an awesome scenario. Steve, you know, I'm back. I'm writing Steve King's in with, you know, with me. Um, it's his idea. It's a great idea. And it's the hardest effing idea to, it, you know, instead of it being a very down homey, like the story takes place in Castle Rock and, you know, we're going to the park again and we're going to go to the coin dealer and all that, you know, it was not familiar. And, and like I said, I'm kind of rambling, but when you, get the plot of the book you'll understand what i mean it's not familiar ground even though it's castle rock and Derry. that's uh, more a, intriguing yeah chunks of the book taste pl- take place there um but uh it's you know we touch on a lot of the stephen king universe in this book a lot of different places a lot of different themes um but just the 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 physical setting made it really unique to anything I'd never, I had never done nothing. You know, I've never done anything like it. So in that regard, I do, I do remember in that first week just going, Oh my God, you know, there's the elation again. We're back again. The, you know, the team's back together again, but Holy shit, Steve, really, we had to go this way, you know? So, but once I, yeah, but once I got kind of got dirty, got my hands dirty, it, it, it was fine. It was, it was just terrifying a little bit. So. I can't, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but that that sounds really intriguing. If you, if this is new for you, well, it's gonna definitely be new for the reader. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but well, that's the neat thing is it's the, like I said, the physical setting is very different than what he's done and what I've done. But you have a lot of Castle Rock, and I'm thrilled we get to go back to Derry. It's you know, it is my favorite novel. Um, I love the town, and the fact that we got to kind of take. Uh, a really important part of Gwendy's story into dairy just, you know, made me uh, endlessly happy every day going to work on that was, was a blast. Yeah, I, I can imagine. So I'm going to move on to uh, a, a tweet you made and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Not going to pretend John Scheich. Scheich. No, it's Sheck rhymes with heck. <laughs> John Sheck. Yeah. All right, so he made an intro. I didn't know that you wrote a screenplay for Black House that never got produced. Is there anything that you can tell us about that? Because the backstory of what he said was, you, you saved the guy's life. It sounds like, and that that I I just got to hear that. No, yeah, I mean John was John's. Uh, you know, we grew up together in Edgewood. You know, um, and then he went out to Hollywood and made big movies with. You know Tom Hanks and Gwyneth Paltrow and Harvey Keitel and all these great actors and and has had a great career. Um, but just like a lot of Hollywood actors, you know, you, you have, you, you know, you're facing, uh, um, you know, rejection and, and, and being turned down for so many things. So, you, you know, you end up getting in that place where, uh, you know, you're unsure of yourself and, um, you're questioning yourself. And I, I think all John means by that is, you know, I was always, I just always reminded him, Hey, we're from Edgewood, man. You know, we, uh, we grew up working class town. We, uh, with a bunch of other good you know, good, good hearted working class guys and, and kind of fought our way up. So, uh, that's all he means. He's, he's a really hmm. talented guy, but yeah, black house was cool because, um, we had, uh, the very first script that John and I wrote together was, uh, an, an adaptation of from a Buick eight. Hmm. And we came very close three or four times to, to getting that film, um, greenlit, um, once with Tom Hanks company, um, Playtone and, um, uh, a couple other times, uh, we had some, some genre directors, Toby Hooper was directed, was attached to direct and George Romero was, was attached and he actually did a, I thought about this the other day for some reason when I was out working in the yard, freezing my ass off. Um, <laughs> I, I have a, I'm like, 
you know, it was really cool. Romero was attached to direct, um, really cool phone call. And he actually did a rewrite on our script. And I have, I, I have what is probably one of two copies of this, uh, you know, rewritten script by uh, Romero sitting up in my office. And I'm like, I need to pull that down sometime. And I need to make sure I put it someplace safe so that when I'm not here anymore, my kids don't just like throw it in a dumpster somewhere. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the funny thing is, is I didn't read the talisman for many, many years. Um, I was just like the same thing with the dark tower stuff. I, I read all the other King stuff and I was, even though I was a Western fan and a King fan, for some reason, you know, hearing stories about talking trains and all this other stuff from the Dark Power series, I was like, I just, I'm not even going to try. Um, finally, Frank Darabont, the director, actually, who I'd become friends with, he's the one who taught me to read um, the Dark Tower books, which I loved. Mm. The Talisman, it was Marsha, who was uh, Stephen King's uh, main assistant for a lot of years. She's the one who kept telling me, you need to read it, you need to read it. I read The Talisman, I loved it. Black House came out, and I was like, this sounds more like my cup of tea, serial killers, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But it just, it didn't get read for a while. And I was down at the beach on vacation with my family and got a call from John. And he said, Akiva Goldsman just called our agent. And, uh, you know, Akiva, he wrote like Cinderella Man and a, a beautiful, he won like Academy Awards and he's a huge producer. And he, he evidently, he read our Buick script, really liked it. And he wanted us to, to know if we were interested in uh, adapting Black House. Um, so, of course, I'm like, you know, standing on the boardwalk with my kids and my wife, and I'm like, of course, yes, let's do it, you know? I'm like, I know it's like a 900-page book, but, you know, I'm sure it'll be a piece of cake to get it down to 120 pages. Oh, my God, crazy and bastard. By the, way, by the way, John, I haven't read it yet. Um, <laughs> so I, all I remember is we spent the remainder of that day scouring um, Ocean City, Maryland, used bookshops for a copy of Black House. And we finally found it, and I read that book in like three days. And John and I put our hearts and soul in it. We, we, I think we did a great job. Um, and I'm usually very hard on us as a team when it comes to scripts. Um, he was married to Christina Applegate at the time, and I just remember she used to laugh because we'd be sitting there at his, at their dining room table, you know, going over script notes and, and looking at our scripts. And I, I would always just say, John, this sucks. <laughs> And she would just crack up and she's like, you know how refreshing that is to hear in Hollywood. Someone just, you know, admitting instead of blowing air up everyone else's ass. Um, but we, re we really did a good job. And um, we got a call from Akiva and, and he did a three way call. And he was he was in Europe at the time working on uh, one of the Da Vinci codes with with Tom Hanks. And this guy was like our God because we're like, he's a huge Stephen King fan. He's done a lot of, lot of genre stuff, but he's done the big films too. Mm -hmm. And um, But I just remember we had a really nice phone conversation with him. And, and he said, I felt, I read it on the train and I felt like I was sitting next to Stephen King. And I was like, I wrote that down on a piece of scrap paper so I wouldn't forget it. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it didn't get made because of all that red tape with the talisman. You know, that was our job. He said, you have to write a script where even if you know we can't get you know the rights or the talisman hasn't been made by by dreamworks you know you ha black house has to stand on its own and i think we did that but it still got tangled up in the red tape and it just never happened so that that's that's par for the hollywood course yeah sounds about right um so I, I want to take us back. When you started uh, telling us the Gwendy story, you mentioned summer of 88, you know, sending 
um, the first issue of Cemetery Dance. So walk us through how Cemetery Dance gets started. Um, I was, I started, I started the magazine during my, during my last year, I was in College Park, Maryland. Um, I was selling my own short stories to a lot of, uh, of the smaller, smaller, small press magazines. And it really was as simple as this. I remember, excuse me, you know, friends and family were excited for me. They're like, Hey, Rich kind of got back to his writing roots and he's selling his work and this is exciting. And I, and, and I, trust me, no one was more excited than me. But then I would get my contributor copies in the mail, and at least fifty percent of the time, I, re- I remember I would pull it out of the out of the envelope, and I would think I can't show this to my parents because it was such a piece of crap. And and I and and I say that knowing you know full well how difficult it is to produce something of quality. Um, but again, these were the mags that paid like a half a cent a word or just copies. Um, again, no regrets. I was happy to be selling to them, but. The finished product just left something to be desired in a lot of cases. So it made me, again, I was young enough and dumb enough to think I could do this and I can do it better than this. So that's what I did. I had no idea what I was doing. And I just said, you know what, let's do this. I knew what I liked and I knew I liked that horror show uh, mixture of fiction, nonfiction, reviews, interviews. Um, so when you're talking about writing what you would want to read, this was exactly the case. I, I published exactly what I wanted to read the kind of magazine that I wanted to pull out of the envelope. And yeah, so that's, that's it. I, you know, I opened up the summer of 88. I opened up for submissions, um, you know, did design the first magazine myself, which is why it looks hideous. Um, my, one of my college roommates did the art right there, you know, on the spot, um, did actual original art on the design pages. Um, we printed it in the University of Maryland's computer lab, which had big signs that said, I think you were limited to printing, tw- it's either 15 or 20 pages at a time because, you know, there were people waiting to print. And we hit, I remember we printed, it was a 48 page first issue and we needed two copies of it. So I remember we hit print on 96 copies and ran away. And when we came back to the uh, computer lab, people were pissed. We're like, sorry, we didn't see it, sorry. So yeah, that, that's how the mag was born. It was it was born out of, uh, you know, each equal parts like bravado and ignorance. It was, you know, it, all of it back then was really honestly, you know, young and dumb enough to to not be scared and just go forward. So that's that's how the business was born. But you kept with it. I mean, obviously, here we are. Uh, 30, oh, math is hard. Thirty-two years later. So I mean, how? Uh, w- what was it like to see it kind of catch on? Um, what was interesting is, is you know, when I worked, I worked on that thing so, you know, like year three is when we started the hardcover books. And I was just in, you know, I mean, I, it was what I loved to do. Um, I didn't make any money those first 10 years. And I worked insane hours. I worked probably, you know, 80. I, I, I got cancer when I was, when I was, 29 and then 30 and my wife still swears that I worked myself into that um but to me it was you know even though I was exhausted and yeah there were plenty of down days where you know I realized uh you know my god you know will this really ever you know take off but I I just genuinely loved so much what I was doing and I didn't couldn't picture myself doing anything else so there were there was no fallback plan talk about no parachute um, and the cool thing is, is, you know, the people who were important to me believed in me. So they, they, I didn't have those doubting voices. 
you know. Um, I certainly didn't have them in my own head except on the worst days. And, and, and my wife and, and my closest friends and certainly my family, um, you know, they got it. You know, even though, well, you know, he's doing this weird magazine and he's publishing these books. And, um, but they saw how hard I, that I was working at it. And they, and I, and they just, you know, they, they put all their support behind me. So, yeah, it, it, you know, to answer your question, you know, how was it to see? I guess that was my long-winded way of saying I didn't really see, even though all those successes were there, I didn't, I didn't really start to see them until my 30s after I came back from cancer and, and restarted everything again, and then I could really appreciate everything. I don't think you can discount being surrounded by the right people to not necessarily, you know, yes people, but people who believe in you, um, who if you want to, you know, say start a magazine or if you want to try your hand at becoming a writer, becoming a publisher, becoming an editor, really and truly support you, um, not necessarily financially, but just morally spiritually uh, and yeah truly yeah, yeah exactly There's, you can't put a price on that no no i mean i i wrote about that in 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 chasing the boogeyman and in, in my next com- in a book that's coming up this summer but um yeah i mean i had friends who who i remember you know i remember really clear um you know a couple moments where a, a good friend of mine who's really talented um you know, his fiance, you know, and, and he was thinking about starting a small business. And I remember she's just like, nah, she wouldn't have it. She's just like this and this. And I remember just thinking how lucky I was and how different it was. Because out of all the things I could have chosen to do you know, to 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 do this. And I mean, and even with my parents, you know, my dad was uh, <clears throat> was a uh, he was retired Air Force. He was a lifer in the Air Force, older older gentleman. I mean, my dad fought in World War II. So I was, I was like the youngest of five and kind of a mistake after the fact. Um, and, uh, you know, we very much had a typical, you know, father and son bump heads, you know, not communicate too well, a very loving relationship, but just not a, <clears throat> not the, the most um, communicative or warm relationship until I probably hit 20 or so. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, I remember always thinking, so, so what's my dad going to think about I got my degree in journalism from one of the best journalism colleges in the nation. I think it was ranked like two at the time. And I'm not only not going to use it, I'm not even going to put together a resume because I'm just going to try to grow this magazine and sell my, my little stories. But he never, you know, the thing is, is he saw how hard I was working and he never, I mean, he, uh, I, I talk about it in Boogeyman where when the first issue came, he was, he was right there next to me, helping me stuff envelopes and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, I what you said is is true for me, you know, a hundredfold. I without that backing and that kind of spiritual belief um, in me, I know I could have never never done it. Because there's too many dark days, you know. There's too many days where you do something that you think's wonderful and you send out, you know, you stuff a thousand envelopes because you bought somebody's mailing list with your last money in your bank account and you bought the postage stamps and you put them on and you think, well, this is going to bring back, you know, five times what I invested and, and it just bombs, you know, you make 27 bucks and you're like, what next? (laughs) So yeah, there's a lot of days like that in the beginning. So Patrick, unless, unless you have uh, cemetery dance follow-ups, do you? Uh, we could go in a million directions, but uh, no, let's let's go wherever you're going. I got other questions that don't pertain well, to Summertary Dance. You, you, you mentioned chasing the boogeyman. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. So 
I, I am very interested to hear from you what this book is about. Because I, I read the synopsis and everything, and it's described as metafiction. Uh, the the main character is a uh, person named Richard Chismar. <laughs> I, so tell me about this book. It's me. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I never. I, I don't make my life easy, do I? Um, so I, uh, you know, after Buttonbox, I actually got an agent for the first time in like fifteen years. I had had a, I had I had had two or three early on, you know, in those first like fifteen years, um, and then I didn't really need one. Um, I had a film agent, and that was all. Um, but after Buttonbox, I got an agent, and you know, we kind of talked about a few different ideas that I would go to for for that first big solo full length, and of course, I ditched them all, and I wrote this book without telling her, um, and it just kind of flew out of me, and. Uh, it's, you know, they, they're calling it metafiction because for some reason I made myself one of the main characters. Um, I'm, I swear I'm not like, you know, I don't have this big ego. I, you know, I, I always tell people, I'm like, look, the proof's there. I never go to conventions. I don't, you know, I don't have my own podcast, even though I, there's days I'd like to because I think it'd be cool. Um, I, I don't post my picture all over, you know, the place. Um so it's not that. It's just this is the way the story wanted to be told. And and what it was, is, uh, to give you a short version, it, it's, you, you know, I kind of told you about when I started the magazine. Um, when I graduated college, um, I was engaged to, to my wife now, Kara, and we were going to get married in, I, I graduated in the spring and we were going to get married in January only because, you know, January, st- I look back and I'm like, what a weird ass time to get married. But it was because she was going into uh, physical therapy graduate school and it, we really, we didn't have time for a honeymoon and we just, you know, we wanted to live together and, you know, just make life easier. Um, so instead of getting a place and spending money, I, f- spring I graduated, I moved back home to my parents' house for that spring, summer and you know, fall and into the winter until we got married. And it was just a really interesting thing to be, you know, uh, there's no question at that point, you're, you know, you're a man, you're, you're, you're into adulthood, but you move home into your old bedroom and you do, you're looking out that window where you played marbles and wiffle ball and traded baseball cards as a kid under the weeping willow tree with your friends. And you, I, I write about it in the introduction to the book. I'm like, you can't help but see the ghosts of your childhood out there. And it just puts you in a different mind space. And uh, at that time in my little hometown of Edgewood, Maryland, there was there was someone there was a uh, someone who was breaking into houses at night and he was touching women's hair and their legs and their arms while they were sleeping. And then they would wake up and he would flee. He would run out. And this happened like 20 times. And the newspapers called him the Phantom Fondler. And I always just remember thinking, you know, I lived through something really interesting because people were locking their doors. There were people who were scared. It was in the newspaper every week. And, you know, people were buying, you know, uh, dead bolts and the whole thing. And I just always remember thinking it could have turned out so much worse. I mean, and I don't mean that to to uh, minimize what happened to these women because it's terrifying and they did eventually catch this guy in baltimore city but um anyway so that's where the story came from i'm like what if i was home and what if more than just touching was going on while i was home this horror guy who's got his own brand new horror business who is selling horror stories and what if he's you know if something is going on in his hometown that's like a, a story out of one of his books or one of the movies that he loves um 
and he becomes part of the story. And it, it just, it, it was like a lightning bolt. And I remember thinking as I'm writing it, um, people are really either going to like this and, and they're going to kind of, you know, dig the, the, the vibe of this story, or they're going to think, Rich, what the hell have you done? And uh, fortunately, you know, even my agent, you know, I kind of had to win her over. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if that gives you enough of a description, but it, that that's where that's kind of how it's metafiction. It's it's this serial killer story mixed with a real sense of nostalgia. Um, a film producer who's looking at it right now said it's the Wonder Years meet Silence of the Lambs. Oh. And I'm like, I'm like, that's kind of right. You know, I'm like, that's kind of right, because that's the kind of neighborhood I grew up in. And it's a tougher place now. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I'll send you guys an arc when I get them. That'd be awesome. Uh, which hopefully should be soon. And the only other, the only other thing I'd say about it and is I'll shut up afterwards. Is I love true crime books. Yeah. So that's again, that's how the story wanted to be told was as if it was a true crime book that I had written back in you know 1988 when this story took place as a young you know 22 year old or whatever I was, and then I came back because. More happened to the story, you know, two and a half decades later, and I came back and I wrote this lengthy new afterward. And that's that's what Chasing the Boogeyman is. Is it's it's set up like a true crime book with like fifty photographs, and um, all my childhood friends are mentioned by name, and the dumb stuff we did is <laughs> talked about in great detail in the beginning of the book because I, I really wanted people to get a sense of this town and the people who live there. So yeah, you get to hear you know, about our neighborhood haunted house and all the legends and, and, uh, you know, my parents have been gone since my mom's been gone since 2001, my dad since 2007. Um, but for a couple months while I wrote this book, you know, they were alive again. And that was, that was a cool thing. And it felt very self-indulgent at times because I'm writing, you talk about just writing what pleases you. That was chasing the boogeyman. It, wow. it, uh, it was like it was my childhood and then my young adulthood and my family was there and my friends were there and bad stuff was happening. And um, it was just a cool little, you know, exercise. Uh, I'm sold. I love the Thomas Harris's trilogy because uh, whenever I talk about this, I'm just stating the fact that I don't like the prequels. So that's why I say the trilogy. Um, I love that. The Hannibal Lecter series, especially Silence of the Lambs uh, and Red Dragon. And The Wonder Years. Grew up on all the reruns as a kid. So you combine the two. I've never <laughs> thought that anyone would say those two would go together and make a story. Yeah, well, I liked when he said that description because I, did, I didn't coin it. But I was like, yeah. And I saw, by the way, The Wonder Years, it's, they're all on Hulu now, somebody told me. Oh. All, uh, all uh, you know, evidently the entire series, so. I was just I was on YouTube the other day watching some of my favorite scenes on uh, from Wonder Years. It's such a good show. It really is. Brennan, you got any thoughts, man? I, I was just going to say I'm very grateful for that description because, you know, I, I went looking into it and I said, OK, this is this is fiction. But then I read the synopsis. I'm like, no, but is he writing about himself? Did did, did Richard stop a serial killer when he was young? <laughs> and we're going to hear about it. And. And then I, I, I saw the whole metafiction thing. I said, but no, there's pictures. And it was just, it really just brought me down this really interesting rabbit hole. I hope a lot of people who are listening are going to be intrigued by that synopsis, because I know I sure as hell am. Um, and, you know, you said, oh, I hope this is, I, I hope people like it. To me, you're mixing, um, you know, horror fiction and true crime. And true crime is so big right now. I did, yeah. I feel like that's just an absolute recipe for success. Mm. 
I hope so. I mean, I just, again, it, you know, as a true crime fan, I always tell people this. I'm like, I'm one of those guys who, you know, if there's pictures and I'm reading about something happening to someone, I flip, I want to flip ahead and see the pictures because I want to see the, the person's face. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't, most true crime books, I, and I have to explain this to people who aren't big fans of, of the genre, but I'm like, you know, they don't have gory pictures. I mean, they might have like a crime scene picture. So you see a splash of blood or something, but you know, most of the pretty mainstream ones are, are, are pretty PG rated as they should be. And, and they, they handle the subject matter with grace, but I always want to see the faces. I, you know, if, if they're describing a spot in the woods, um, where something was found, I want to see that that spot in the woods. So I'm hoping there's a photo in there. And that's, that's where the ideas of the photos came from. You know, they're at, instead of being in one central photo section, they're, they're scattered throughout the book. They're at the end of each chapter. So you can have that immediate visual, um, link. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, that's, that's, that's just where it came from. And I, you know, my son, I wanted this to be like the full on Blair witch. I wanted people to read this book. My original title was just The Boogeyman, A True Story of Small Town Horror. Well, the publisher nixed that right away. <laughs> like, number, number one, it's got to sound more like a true crime book. So they came up with Chasing the Boogeyman, which I really liked. Um, they, they, they gave me several options and, and they gave me complete freedom to come up with my own and I couldn't. Um, and they nixed the subtitle. But, and that's what I told them. I said, I, wanted, I want people to put the book down and not have a clue whether it's real or not. And they're just like, you know, you just want to get sued. And that's what my that's what my son kept saying. He's like, you're going to drive down property values in your hometown. <laughs> I'm like, the people who live in your parents' house, because I had the real address, they're like, the people who live in your parents' old house, the house you grew up in, are going to hate you. And I, and I, I, re- I just remember telling them, I'm like, Billy, like 300 people might read this book. We don't really know because it hadn't sold yet. I'm like, you know, I might be publishing this through CD as like a limited or something because my agent is telling me, you know, Rich, you're crazy. But it didn't turn out that way. But, uh, yeah, I still have ideas to kind of Blair Witch it. I, I'd like to do uh, some like documentary style book trailers um, and bring in, cool. some the, bring in some of the people who are in the actual pictures and, and shoot them like old time footage and, 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 you know, have some of the reporters who are featured in pictures, you know, doing interviews with bystanders and stuff. I think it'd be cool to do that. Yeah. No, that'd be a really interesting way to do a book trailer too. Um, true crime is an interesting subject because we, me and Brennan have said this on a few episodes, but our wives are the same in the sense where they don't like horror, but they will eat the shit out of true crime. And yeah, no, my wife's the same thing, especially she, she just last night. She's like, well, I put on like that 20, whatever that's, it's pretty mainstream series, 20 for 20 or something like that. It's on like the Oprah network or something reruns. And she, <laughs> I just, I see her, she'll come in from, you know, the bathroom brushing her teeth or something. And she sits on the edge of the bed and I see all of a sudden I see her eyes get focused and she, and 10 minutes later, she's still there. And she's like, you cannot watch this stuff at night anymore. Cause I get hooked and I need to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing. It's true so, crime. It's, it's a different animal. The one with that came out last year, I can't remember. Wow, I can't believe I forgot his name. But he was recently, I think, in Texas, killed his family. Uh, found him in the uh, those containers for oil. He killed his his daughters and yeah, that was the like most fucked up one I've seen that I can remember to date. Yeah, there's some scary ones, man. The, the, the Night Stalker one I just saw, which wasn't mm. it wasn't fantastic because it was it was a little too glitzy and 
it was almost it was like you know they're usually pretty respectful and they don't kind of hollywoodize glamorize them this one was like a little bit too music video-ish yeah. But that last episode where you really get these close views of Richard Ramirez and stuff, man, I was terrified. I'm like, this, this guy looks like the, what the devil, what I think the devil looks like. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I'll be gone in the dark on HBO and, and you know, those, I, that's what's always fascinating me is the human monsters. And, and, and I've, I've written very little supernatural fiction because I just, a, a reviewer once said, you can tell he doesn't quite buy into it. And that was a long time ago. Um, cause the thing is, is I'm a big chicken. I do believe I'm like, yeah, I believe in spirits and demons and all that stuff. Um, but I just can't quite up until recently. I don't think I could really write convincingly about it, but hmm. the monster stuff. Yeah. Cause I've always, like I said, I've always been that freak kind of like, you know, it, it looks like the wonder years neighborhood, but I don't know what kind of weird shit's going on behind those closed doors. That was me as a kid. <laughs> you know, walking home, kind of telling my friends, you know, we, you know, I think Mr. So-and-so might be a serial killer. Like, why do you say that? I'm pretty sure Kevin's older brother was a serial killer. That guy, that kid sucked. <laughs> yeah, that was his path, for sure. <laughs> so, I got, I got to ask you, I've never heard you say that you're at least interested in the idea of doing your own podcast. I think you'd be good at it. you got more than enough people that you could pick from uh, to have on. Would that actually happen? You know what? I don't know. What, my my oldest son Billy's he's going to graduate from college this spring, and and you know for a while I, I I had the idea that yeah maybe he'd come home and work with the old man for like a year or two and before he you know started doing his own thing and I thought, you know he could really help my business by, you know we talked about him like starting a YouTube channel for us and things like that. I don't know if that'll happen. Um, he's a lot more. You know, he he wrote a novel this last summer when he was home and I've actually spent the last couple months, uh, you know, in my in my free time editing the book for him. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, he he's way, way, way ahead of where I was. So he may just decide to go on his own path and do his thing, mm-hmm. um, which is great. You know, I'll support him whatever he does. Um, but if yeah, but if he did decide to kind of, you know, come in and help out and, and get on the payroll for a year or two, I think there's a chance. You know, I just, uh, you know, put the camera like nice and far away from me. And <laughs> so I can like just sit on a couch and, and slouch back in my office. And, um, you know, I always, I thought it would be cool because people always like to hear the behind the scenes stories, like about a lot of the things we've done. And I thought it would be neat at some point to take like the first 100 books we published and do a quick little like five minute snippet behind each book. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I would like to do that because that's something I'd like to hear from other publishers, you know, and I actually think it could be valuable to, to some people because, it, it, you know, to hear me say, you know what, I love this book with my heart and soul, but I overpaid the artist and I hate the cover, <laughs> but I was a rookie back then. So I didn't know how to not get talked into overpaying for something. And, you know, just those kind of stories. Um uh, I, I think would be a lot of fun. And then, like you said, I mean, I, I do know a lot of people and I think I could get them to kind of come on and, and, and trust me and, and, and probably tell some good, funny stories too. Well, uh, Ron Kelly pointed something out to me cause we, him and I talk frequently and, um, he, he said, and I'm not trying to come off like I'm bragging about me and Brennan, what we're doing, but he pointed out something where I thought, Hey, that makes sense. Um, we got Ramsey Campbell on last week, Jar Lansdale, him, and then Gabino and Brian. He said, you're gapping generations, and they're talking about their past. And I, now I view him and I as 
basically archivists for this generation or people that are still alive of previous generations. It's it's fun, man. And it is valuable because I, I don't know what lessons someone could take away from it. That's how I see it. I mean, I'm like what we're doing now. I'm talking to you. You got a lot of knowledge and experience with big names to newer people. So I'd personally be a big fan of the shows. So I, I don't know. That that's one fan you got. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'll I don't know if we'll ever do it. If I do, I'm gonna make you two come on and talk and but uh yeah, to. I mean, because I think, you know, I think about, you know, what we're doing here tonight. And I just think, you know what, because they passed away too soon, there's no Charlie Grant on a podcast. There's no Rick Howdala, um, you know, and there's a long list of guys like that who who are no longer with us. And, um, yeah, like you said, you know, you're, you're archiving kind of the, the, the heart and soul of the genre by talking to all these people. And, um yeah, I mean, I, I remember when my father was passing, thinking, God, I should have videotaped. I should have had him just sit down and tell me a bunch of his old World War II stories um, because he did some some pretty amazing things and knew some pretty amazing people, and I would have loved to have those on film to watch over and over again. I uh, I got one quick story that I really think you'd appreciate. Brendan might, too, is uh, of all places, I was at a family member's funeral, and my great-uncle Francis, um, he's no longer with us, but this was years ago, he is uh, was a World War II pilot. I don't know the exact uh, uh, ti- uh, not title, the exact position or rank. I, I don't even know the terminology that he held. Uh, I do know that he he was in the Air Force, got shot down uh, over enemy lines, and he was telling me and my father the story. And we're big history fans, love the History Channel and whatnot. And uh, he was telling us he's like me and the guys I was with went from one location to another to get back, you know, with our allies. And, you know, if we get caught, we're in Russia. We're in the middle of a war. We will get killed or worse. We'll be tortured. And he said, um, at one part, uh, I saw this mother and uh, this, not sorry, this this kid get hit by a truck. The, the truck stopped a few feet away, got out, pulled out a gun. Um, the mom came out, screamed like, you know, obviously stop or whatever. And he shot the mom and the kid was dying. So he drove off and no one did anything and he couldn't do anything. Right. These aren't stories I'd ever think of. And uh, it's never left my head. And um, you hear that story. Brennan hears that story. Listeners here. We're all imagining the same basics of it. But, you know, the mind plays crazy. It'll paint a crazy image from hearing that alone. Like, I can't imagine that. You see someone kill a mother and and the, the kids lying there dead like that's horrible yeah all, all just what the, what yeah what the, you know what they live through and and when they talk about you know uh what's the uh what do they say are uh, I'm, I'm forgetting you know the, the phrase they coin about our our finest generation or what it was the words i'm thinking of that i'm not that i'm not I think saying. it's the uh, greatest generation the greatest generation yeah, yeah. i mean the, the things that they did back then and they were young and they volunteered to go do this and and you know yeah i i just you know like with band of brothers i still say that's the best television i've ever seen mm. because they really do put you there and and i i just you know i remember talking to my dad a lot and my uncle and my dad he he was uh he served in in europe and also the pacific during world war ii and yeah he you know we have all the old souvenirs and 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 photographs that he took of of you know 
the trenches there on on you know uh, Okanagua, then you know the caves and stuff. And yeah, just yeah, I I just again as as a creator, I I often would put myself in those positions, and I'd be like, nah. When I was twenty two, my mom was still cooking me dinner. Because- <laughs> there before i got married and then when we got married i was ordering delivery from like Domino's, and so yeah to be thinking of myself in some filthy trench and you know at the battle of the bulge freezing my ass off i'm like you know first thing i'd be like where do i use the bathroom (laughs) you know they'd be like right here dumbass yeah man think of any any battle i mean it's fucking terrifying i remember the first r-rated movie i ever went to was with my father um and I, this is in 2001, Enemy at the Gates, uh, Jude Law. He, I, I hesitate to say it's my favorite war movie because there's so many good ones. And um, Saving Private Ryan, feel like that has to be my favorite. But I, there's so many good ones, I can't decide. But Enemy at the Gates, for those that have not seen it, phenomenal. Uh, Vasily Zaitsev, and he he's a Russian sniper that takes on Ed Harris, German sniper, and yeah. that scene where the kid's being hung, I just I'm a kid watching another kid, and I know it's a movie getting hung, but I got fucking chills, man, and I still do. I yeah, I bet I've seen that movie ten or twelve times because you know it like comes on HBO or Cinemax and yeah. Showtime, and I'm laying there in bed, and, and yeah, that's one of those. That's uh, one of those. You know, can you change channel until I fall asleep for my wife? <laughs> because it's like, you know, it's loud, but the, that movie's amazing. Yeah, everything about that. The set, the sets on that movie, of uh, the rubble and the buildings and the yeah. little crevices that they shoot through and all that is just amazing. And just one more comment on that movie is my favorite part. I think that sticks out at least right now is when he first. I think it's his first kills, and he's seeing the guys just talking, uh, the ranking officers, and with each bomb going off, takes out another guy, and you're, you're like, all right, this is going like to be good. in that fountain or something. That yeah, yeah. yeah. That little, yes, yeah, and the other guy comes up and joins them, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, no, it's, there's, like, there's like 20 favorite scenes in that whole thing. When they cross the, the river or whatever in the beginning, and they're just, yeah. getting, they're just getting slaughtered, I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I was a major. I was a major. When I was a kid, it was I was all about scary movies and war movies and westerns. I, you know, I tell my kids, I'm like, you, you know, I, you, you would get the TV guide, and I would mark what I wanted to see on the calendar. So I made sure I could either bargain ahead of time if it was a nighttime movie. I could bargain with my parents ahead of time so that I could stay up late on a school night and watch it. And if it was on the weekends, they hated it because, like I said, <laughs> I'd be right in the middle of, like, you know, pitching baseball cards or doing this or that. And I'd be like, I got to go, you know, so-and-so's on, you know. So, yeah, those were my thing. And those were the first stories I wrote when I was, like, seven or eight. They were all war stories and monster stories. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I can relate there, too, because my papa, my dad's father, he was a World War II Navy boy. And what he liked were Westerns. He liked, you know, John Wayne um, mm-hmm. in particular. Uh, a, a movie that I mean, a show that I started liking because of my father was The Rifleman. I mean, it's oh, yeah. it, it's kind of silly now because of the there's no like violence the way there should be, but at the same time, it's fun. I like it. Yeah, no, I mean that's it. Whatever takes your imagination. I, I was convinced. I was like fascinated by George Custer and the Seventh Cavalry and all that stuff. And still to this day, I'm like, I'm hard to shop for. So every Christmas when, <laughs> when my sister start badgering me, what do you want for Christmas? 
I always throw out the same thing just to mess with them. I'm like, I still, I'm still waiting on my my seventh cavalry uh, full size, you know, replica uh, uniform. They're like, Rich, we're not getting you that. I'm like, all right, well then, give me the Elvis Ryan studded jumpsuit. They're like, Rich, we're not getting you that. <laughs> so, but yeah, now when I was, yeah, when I was young, I remember going to the library and just reading as much as I could about westerns in the West. Yeah. And you know, you're young, so you know, back then I was, I was all about how you know. The, the cavalry were the good guys and the Indians, Indians were the bad guys. And then, you know, you grow up and you're like, son of a bitch. You know, I was tricked. Um, yeah. The History Channel is a great, uh, it is part Western, uh, a great mini series called The Men That Built America. And then they got a prequel, The Men That Built America Frontiersmen. And it covers, you know, the Western expansion and uh, how California and all the West Coast states were one. That, that I, I'm sure there's books about them, fictional books, but I, I haven't seen any recently, and I would I love to read about those guys. Um, I'm going to move on to some questions. Well, this is the only set of questions that we got. Uh, he goes by the book dad. His name's Andrew. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said um, – uh, sorry, I thought I had them. <laughs> Here they are. He said, I want to get Shizmar's thoughts on promoting an author's Amazon profile and the benefits of it. I noticed with his new book, he does a lot of promotions surrounding Amazon and pre-orders. So yeah. that's the first one. You know what? I'm just feel, I'm kind of feeling my way around, and that's the interesting thing with, uh, you know, with chasing the boogeyman. You know, we sold it for for a decent chunk of money to Simon and Schuster to Gallery Books, um, and kind of for the first time, I feel like I'm working for someone else. And I feel like, okay, you know, there's certain things I will do for a book that I'm publishing on my own or, you know, Subterranean Press might be publishing it or Gauntlet or someone. You know, it's a specialty press book. There's kind of only so much you can do. And usually those books don't have, you know, the big eight, nine month waiting period that I've had with Boogeyman. So I've really kind of went into it with the idea of, okay, I I really want to promote this book to you know, the indie stores like my local, you know, uh, bookstore, which I've been promoting. I actually just sent out a bunch of stuff on social media tonight for them. Um, but I also want to make sure that I'm that I'm logging these traditional sales through Amazon and the Barnes and Noble and the traditional bookstores because, I, you know, I want I want the numbers to, to, to look promising for Simon & Schuster and for them to feel like they made a good investment in me. So it's weird because I do feel like after all this time, I'm working for someone else. So that's where the, kind of the these promotions are coming from and the idea that um, let's figure out what works and what doesn't work. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, with some of the stuff we've been doing on like Facebook for Amazon, we've just been kind of targeting, you know, r- readers who are, are interested in both true crime and Stephen King. We did one that was specifically for the state of Maryland and used the ad that talks about a small town in Maryland to see how that does. Um, you know, and, and I just, I, my philosophy is, uh, I have a feeling sometimes people think, well, you know, he, he's doing he's doing some stuff that are that are probably, you know, he's been on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, he was on the USA Today list with his own book and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm not sure he needs to even do some of these, you know, kind of smaller scope things. But I'm like, man, that's that's how I built my business is just kind of covering every little nook and cranny. And, and it's fun. You know, it, I think it's fun to kind of um, get out there and, and try things. You know, it's, that's always been the key to, to our success is that, you know, I've never been afraid to fail or look dumb. You know, I'm like, man, I, yeah, I can't count the times I've done it. I just get up and keep going. So, you know, with, with this promotional stuff, I kind of go in with the same mindset and, um, I've used this 
you know, kind of description a few times. And I always feel like, ah, oh, it's a little corny, but it really fits. And it's like, I'm still that kid sitting on the corner of Hanson and Tupelo Road selling cups of uh, lemonade <laughs> for a quarter of a cup. And, but, you know, now I'm selling books. And uh, if, if I can get out there and hustle, you know, some books for my publisher and, and you know, th- this appearance or this ad um, campaign, you know, might sell 450 advanced copies. This one might only sell six. But you know what? It, it is, as long as um, it, as long as you're reaching readers, and you never know who's going to be in that six. That you know, it might be a guy who who turns it on to his book club, and there's another twenty. And then it, you know, I just I kind of just look at it as, hey, uh, I'm fortunate to be in this position. So, you know, let's bust my ass and try to to make it a success for my publisher. That's I'm really glad that you said that because um, not I don't I don't want to speak for me or Brendan, but Maybe if I was a newer writer and I hadn't heard from more uh, seasoned writers, I might think that once you reach a certain point, you don't have to work so hard. But I've heard the opposite for, you know, agents or publishers. Like if you basically if you aren't hustling, they're not seeing any results. They're probably going to be looking for someone else to represent a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, unless you're that huge upper tier, and even the the Steve Kings and the Harlan Cobins and those guys, they're still out there doing appearances from time to time when they have a new book, and they're, they're still doing things that that you know they'd probably prefer not to be doing. But the, that's out of respect to their publisher and 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 their readers. And um, yeah, I mean, especially especially in in the really quality specialty presses, smaller presses where you can still sell four or five thousand copies of a book if you work. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes. I think the author participation makes all the difference, and and uh, I, th- I think you kind of owe it to that publisher to do that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, if if they've got that guy to go with, or they've got the guy who's gonna kind of just sit back and not say a word, and and kind of you know give that sideways glance to the readers and the press, then yeah, you go with the guy who's gonna get out and, work and hustle for you. Yeah, because I've I've kind of like studied. Uh, just being on Twitter for so many years that the authors that do the most engagement kind of get the most feedback, which makes sense there. You know, you, you do something and you get a result back. Uh, the ones that have a big following don't have a lot of people actually engaging in them. And uh, I mean, to me that says, well, it's probably going to be the same thing for when your book's on sale or your new book's coming out. Less people are interested if you're not engaging and actually talking to them. Yeah. I mean, I had to be dragged into uh, social media kind of kicking and screaming. But <laughs> everyone at my office, they're like, Rich, you know, we're all on there. You, you know, they would. And I used to like, uh, you know, like the, there was a couple bulletin boards back when those were more popular. They were, they were message boards, not bulletin yeah, boards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll show you. I'm a techno idiot, by the way. I still have an AOL address and, you know, the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I used to follow a couple of those message boards and I was fascinated. I loved them. Um, and people were like, well, why don't you ever post it? I'm like, I finally admit it to one day. I'm like, I don't even know how to register for the thing, man. I'm like, it's probably better. I don't because I'm, I'm liable to get on there and say something stupid. But when I did get dragged onto social media, it, it, I just ended up having my eyes open because between meeting, you know, guys like you and, and also readers and, and people with like-minded interests, and then reconnecting with my old friends. I was like the poster boy for like, this is what Facebook is all about. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed it. And I, people, you know, have had their horror stories and I'm like, 
I can count the people on one hand that I've had to block over the years. Um, you know, uh, you know, I've, I've been lucky that there's, that I've had really good groups of people, you know, who I've talked with on there and, and, um, you know, I also have thick skin. So if somebody wants to say something bad, they can. And usually I always usually feel bad because, you know, if somebody comes on and like drops a smart ass comment, there's usually like 50 people who are like jack the guy up and I'm like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I, you know, <laughs> I'm fine with it, you know? Um, but yeah, yeah, I've been fortunate and, and, uh, and you're right. I mean, the, the fact that they like to interact and uh, somebody busted me like two weeks ago, they're like, why do you say thank you at everyone? I'm like, cause I'm fucking polite. I'm like, <laughs> I have my books, man, they're, they're like putting tw- 20 bucks or 25 bucks or $8 for a paperback or whatever. You know, I'm like, that's again, man, I'm, I, I am the kid who walked around with a paperback in his back pocket and thought maybe one day I'll be a writer, you know? So to be able to do it and, 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 and have you know to start having some success and like we talked about be able to write with your hero and and I, I, I just you know there there are no days that I take it for granted so I know how lucky I am I'm appreciative of it and um, I'm still you know I've still got the big eyes and and I'm excited by it all so yeah somebody goes on there and says hey I just pre-ordered your book you know what that's my natural response is thanks man you know that is awesome and I hope you like it you live by a mantra mantra so that weird you live by a mantra that did i say that right i keep yeah, saying uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you live by the same one that i do man it's my dad told me ever since i was a kid don't ever forget your roots wherever you end up and because my roots were uh very family oriented um you treat people with respect you are upfront and honest and you just you're you you don't change for other people um, you just kind of live your true life, and I see it in you. I see it in I can list so many other people, and those are my favorite kinds of folks. Um, even successful filmmakers like Kevin Smith. I mean, he's he seems like a good guy. I don't know, but yeah, you know, you can always you can usually uh, recognize the people who kind of you know they're not faking. They it it, it is what it is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's like. Yeah, I can't fake, you know, if we we could be at some stuffy, you know, presentation dinner or something. If the guy next to me farts, I'm going to laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's just me. And you know what? Chances are, you know, if you hear five other guys laughing in that room, they're all my buddies because that's just, you know, uh, um, and that, yes, that's a juvenile example, but it is what it is. And uh, yeah, I have the same thing. I mean, and that what's funny is you talk about, you know, you don't forget your roots and it's like uh, this is not an advertisement but it's like you say that and i think well you know what that's what boogeyman is for me that's what chasing the boogeyman is it's it's my roots and uh it's kind of like how i uh, ended up doing what i'm doing and uh, it's all right there in the book and that's why you know i'm doubly excited you know uh somebody might you know guess who the killer is or somebody might this or that but in a, it, in a way it doesn't matter because it's kind of my like my tom sawyer book where it's just like you know what here here's here's a lot of my adventures from my youth and and i finally had an excuse to share them you know and there's some pretty gross stuff in there that my friends did and, and people are going to be like rich what made you think to put that in there? i'm like because i was there i saw it you know <laughs> brendan i got one more comment and then jump in i've been talking long enough but uh but i don't know if you're fan do you like south park at all rich oh my yeah my son just showed me the uh pandemic special before he he, he left for maine yesterday yeah um and on sunday um before the super bowl he he showed me the pandemic special and <laughs> i said you know what there's no other series 
on television where I will say Jesus Christ or holy shit more than watching South Park. <laughs> I'm like, there's so many things where I'm like, how? I'm like, Billy, it is literally like me and you at our worst and most politically incorrect. And, and they're just putting our thoughts on screen. I'm right there with you. When the movie came out, uh, it's me and a group. I was like in eighth grade or something like that. And uh, me and a group of kids uh, played travel basketball. We were in, I think we were actually in Maine. I don't remember which part, but we were, I'm from Massachusetts. So we were traveling throughout New England. And um, it was me and all the guys and the parents were together. And we were just in a hotel room watching that movie. I love it. <laughs> me, but I bring it up because my son, I got one son right now, one kid. His name's Philip. Not because of South Park, but my bro- <laughs> I got a little brother, and I said, when you get a kid, if he's a boy or a girl, name them Terrence. <laughs> and and he's like, all right. I'm like, our wives won't think it's funny, but we will. <laughs> so a lot of other people. Yeah, no, that's great. See, yeah. you, you know, you're very short with, and I don't mean that in a, like an angry way, but you're you're kind of to the point. On social media, so this is awesome, man. Like I've already, I already liked you, but this is yeah. this is a new side to you, Brennan. Go ahead, take take it away. I'm waffling on. Uh, t- no, I was just gonna say, you know, the the moment that I don't find a loud fart in a crowded room funny, I'll be ready to hang it up. Um, yeah, it's 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 the peak of comedy. It's you know, it is. Farts are funny. I don't understand people who don't think it's funny. Guys, you know, girls, it's a different thing, you know, whatever. But but still, I, uh, uh, yeah, if you're a guy and you don't think it's funny, then, yeah, chances are, you know, we're not going to get along. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun social media because my wife will say, my wife will still bust me all the time. She's like, yeah, there's people on social media think you're a saint and they think you're this. And I'm like, well, I can't exactly go on social media and, you know. And, and talk about how I showed my kids how to light a fart. You know, <laughs> I, I can't. I can say that here, or I can say that if you know, if uh, if I'm you know doing a phone interview or something. But it's it's like, you know, I don't want to interrupt someone's day with this tweet out of nowhere about how hey, you know, by the way, if you want to see this, <laughs> that's the yeah. first time I meet Rich. I'm going to uh, just make a fart sound, and that's I will. Tell first me. Yeah, and if we're somewhere where we, you know, where we're supposed to be quiet, then I'll be the guy doing that, like hyperventilating laugh and tears coming out of my eyes, and you know, yeah, no, trust me. So. All right, a- Andrew had one more question. Um, <laughs> that was a long way to answer a question you have track, so I hope we do that with this one. He said, <laughs> also, does he have any suggestions on how to build an email list? Before you answer that, I just want to plug his newsletter. It's horror newsletter spelt like it's sound.com slash sign up um andrew's asking that like how to build up an email list for his yeah he's curious how if you have any suggestions on how to build an email list for like a newsletter um some of the more basic ones just you know run some contests you know email a guy like me and say hey do you have a couple books you can give away i want to give away you know and, and i'll make sure i you know promote you for a week or whatever um there's a ton there are a ton of people who i think would do that um, you know, or, you know, uh, c- again, come to someone like me and say, Hey, would you donate a $25 gift card to cemetery dance and, and give that away. You say, Hey, uh, you know, whoever joins the, uh, the newsletter over the next week and all existing, you know, members of the newsletter are, are going to be, you know, entered into this people like that stuff. 
Um, I love doing it. I like, you know, people are like, why do you give away the Stephen King books or why do you give away this, you know, gift edition or whatever? I'm like, man, it makes people happy. Uh, you know, I love your giveaways, man. It makes people happy. And, the, and again, it's corny, but the fact, and I, and I've said this out loud, I'm like the fact that, that everybody kind of is jazzed for whoever the winner is. You know, I don't get too many people who are, you know, they, they joke about it, but I don't get too many people who are just like, fuck you, Rich. You know, I've tried eight times. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, you know, sorry. Um, but yeah, you know what? It makes people happy. And, and especially over the last year where people need, you know, something to get excited about. So that's one thing. Give stuff away. People dig that. And, and you know, in the end, you'll end up having more fun with that than, than the people who are winning it. I, I really believe that. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, the advice that I used to always give to like magazine publishers, just you know, search every nook and cranny, you know, post, post, you know, what they're going to get if they sign up for your newsletter and, 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 and do it everywhere, you know, do it in the smallest places. That's, that's something that helped Cemetery Dance grow in the beginning is I did a lot of, I gave away a lot of copies of the magazine. I sent them free to people like Stephen King and Peter Straub and Joe Lansdale. And trust me, those guys weren't going to subscribe to some fledgling little magazine that was, that was just starting out. Um, but that I used to call it my VIP list cause it was, you know, it was the guys I grew up reading. Um, that list, you know, it existed, you know, the first 20 years of the magazine. I just, you know, I always wanted to make sure I put a copy in front of them. You know, that's kind of hard for him to do with a newsletter, but it's not hard to, to search every nook and cranny and post it all over. Again, that's, if I had had social media back then, I probably would have worked myself to death because it was, you know, kind of the sky's the limit. Um, instead, there were only like so many mailing lists I could rent and stuff envelopes and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, t- you know, tell them you can drop me a note. I'll donate something and and um, just keep at it. That's the big thing. Longevity, you know, that uh, people have often said to me, how did you earn, you know, the trust of a Stephen King or a Peter Straub? And I'm just like, you know, right from the beginning, I think they saw that I was passionate. They heard it in my voice. Um hmm. And they knew it. I said, but, uh, you know, even then, you know, there are people out there who are, you know, uh, well-intentioned and they, and they don't follow through. I said, I think it was, you know, year five and then year 10 where they kind of realized this, you know, he really is too dumb to go away and start selling something else to make money. He's, he's here for the long haul and he's doing it for the right reasons. And, and mm-hmm. uh, I think things like that, you can't measure the, the, the value there. Um, so yeah, just keep pushing it and, and uh, be aggressive and without being a pain in the ass and, um, the other thing you can do is ask authors to promote it for them, you know, mm. put them and put that in their newsletters or, or hit it through their mailing list. Um, Twitter's great because, you know, you got that retweet thing. So you say, you know, Hey, just retweet this tweet and join my mailing list and you're in the, and you're in the raffle and, uh, I'm going to give you cool stuff. Andrew, follow through with that, man. Uh, he will be listening to this. So follow through with that advice, sir. Uh, Brennan, do you have anything that you'd like to jump to now, sir? Uh, actually, I wanted to plug Andrew real quick. And, you know, we mentioned that you can follow him on Twitter at the book dad. Um, he's doing this really neat thing. And I don't know if it's just relegated to this month, but um, he started up a merchandise shop selling kind of uh, indie horror T-shirts and uh, gear and things like that. And uh, apologies to him if I screw this up, but... I believe he's putting all the proceeds towards some sort of, um, I can't think of a better word than scholarship to, you know, donate towards, um, a woman horror writer to, uh, get 
you know, a professional edit on on their book, uh, to get a cover on their book, to um, promote you know, their stuff, basically, however they want to use it. Um, it's, it's really kind of a neat idea that, uh, he came up with and it's cool. you know, worth support. Sure. Definitely. Well, I would, yeah, I would certainly see. And that's something I would certainly retweet if he said, Hey, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, um, that's the cool thing with, I, again, and, and I've been fortunate that the, the people that, that have kind of, uh, you know, circled my social media accounts, you know, they're actually, really active you know they're they 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 like to interact you know verbally on, on the different threads and they support people and i know a lot of times i recommend other people's books and they're you know i get these tweets back ordered i just put it on reserve and i'm like that it's cool you know mm. just have people who are willing to, to to kind of support you know other creators out there you know what i had a similar moment today like that where i was just like tweeting about two women writers that I'm reading at the moment and um, they both commented on it and the first one was like hey I'm gonna order her book and then the other one was like I'm actually ordering your book too I was like this this is what it's all about I, yeah it makes everyone happy yeah no I'm with you I, I uh, that's again that's you know it, it I always feel like all right they're gonna be there goes Chismar being cheesy again but it's like that's the cool thing about it is is uh and I, like I said, I was never a big convention goer, but the handful that I did force myself to go to, I always came back like re-energized and I'm like, this is great. Mm. You know, I met so many cool people. And then of course it took, you know, six years to drag me out to go to the next one. And I came back, my wife makes fun of me. She's like, then you come back and you're saying the same thing again. This was awesome. I need to go to more of these. And then, you know, it's four more years. And <laughs> so now with these kind of things, with these podcasts and, and, and that's the other thing, you know, it, if I ever did something like that myself is it would be cool to get you know, a bunch of people on, on there at the same time and just kind of be able to, you know, there, there's a lot of cool stories out there to hear. And sure. uh, there's a lot, I, I always feel like there's a lot of unique opportunities that come out of getting a bunch of people like that talking, you know, somebody, somebody else starts writing or somebody says, you know what, I'm going to start my own little, you know, online bookstore, you know, people kind of energize and, and inspire people. So yeah, it, it, good stuff. The roundtable episodes have been my favorite. Uh, last week, like I said, with Joe R. Lansdale, Gabino Glacius, Cena Palayo, and uh, S.A. Cosby. That was just a blast. Me and Brennan barely talked. Yeah, that I bet it was. Joe R. Lansdale's got, like, he he started off, I'm pretty sure, like, fuck the reader. I write for <laughs> mayor. <laughs> I used to talk to Joe on the telephone when I was starting out and when I was publishing his books, like, you know, year five, four and five and six. And I just remember I would talk to Joe and he was so engaging and he would talk for so long and, you know, we'd be on the phone and, and, and the UPS guy would come and he would talk to him for a minute and then he'd come back and then the postman would come and he'd come back. And, and I just remember, man, this guy can talk, but everything he says is interesting. And I'm like, what the hell is he writing? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. And really interesting guy and an inspiring guy. I I love the, the stories of Joe, Joe's start and, and kind of how he has always just stuck to his guns. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what, that's just one guy, you know, we not, not, not to keep coming off. Like we're really trying to get you to start that podcast. Although, like you said, we've got, you got two listeners already. Um, there's no competition per se with the whole, you know, horror, indie horror genre podcast thing, because there's just so many stories to tell so many people to talk to and so many ways to go about it. Right. Uh, There's always room for one more. Uh, if, 
if you've got well again if you if 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 you've got an idea for the stories you want to hear <laughs> yeah no i love that i mean that's, people used to say that to me about the magazine and the book business is like you know you're you're always willing to share and give advice and blah 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 and, you know what don't you don't feel like it's competition and and i'm just like you know what now man cuz i always I want more stuff to, to pull out of my mailbox and read. And I'm like, so the more people who do this and do quality stuff and do stuff that, that would be of interest to me, the better. Um, you know, there's, look at it. Yeah, there's no, you know, we're, none of us are going to grow that big where, you know, you kind of have to feel like you need everybody. It, it, it's silly. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at Stephen King. He's, I'm, I mean, uh, it's not even an opinion anymore. He's the biggest author in the world, and he constantly promotes so many people. He doesn't have to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's the neat thing. Is is again? Is you know, he's seventy something years old. He's writing his ass off still, um, and he's still going out of his way to you know. It's it's just not it's not just about you know donating money, which is a big deal. But mm-hmm. you know, hey. It, once you have it, you're supposed to give some of it away. You know, even your accountant will tell you that. You know, it'll make your tax forms look better and all that stuff. <laughs> That's not why he and Tabby do it. You know, they're good people. But the stuff he does on Twitter, like you said, recommending other people's books and all that stuff is 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 pretty amazing. And and the people who you know really know Steve will tell you. You know, he is a very generous, kind-hearted, you know, smart as hell guy. Um, and the fact that he's seventy and, and is still seventy something is just doing all this stuff to the extent that he does it. Is is amazing, you know, and and that was the cool thing writing this book with him is I actually get every once in a while I get a tweet, Rich, you having fun? I'm like, yeah, hell yes, I'm having fun. <laughs> um, but I think he's you know kind of similar mindsets, which is just you know, make sure you're having a good time with what you're doing too, because you're going to do better work that way. And and I understand it's not always like that. You got to write when you got the flu, and you know you got to yeah. write deadline, and sometimes you got to write for a shitty contract or whatever, or no contract because you know. You're waiting, but um, but again, when you when you've got all the money in the world in the bank and you've already accomplished so much to keep going at it, like like none of that stuff is there is pretty admirable. He's the Tom Brady of authors. I just had to say it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna tell him you said that, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna I I I I I texted with him often through the Super Bowl, and at some point he's like, "Are you rooting for the Chiefs?" <laughs> And I'm like, you know what? I'm really not. And I'm like, but you got to understand, it still hurts me to uh, to to root for Tom Brady. I said it hurts a little, man. And he just wrote, you know, sent me back a laughing emoji or something. <laughs> he, I, I mean, Mahomes is the, he's the future, man. Unless he gets seriously injured, he's the fucking future of the NFL. Yeah, and he had no chance in that game. I mean, that was not that wasn't about him. He just. I don't care who you were. I'm like, you know, Lamar probably would have broke a couple runs because they were rushing. You know, I mean, you know, Mahomes blinked and he was 20 yards behind the line of scrimmage sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Life. And I'm like, a couple times I'm like, you know what? Lamar probably could have got out of that and gained some. I'm like, but he would have he would have no better luck throwing the ball. (laughs) It was ugly. I felt sorry for him. Yeah. That uh, because they they actually somebody actually did the math on this. They said that uh. Mahomes ran for over 500 yards just running away from <laughs> defenders behind the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Legitimately, not even exaggerating. <laughs> it was like some of those backyard games where you just you know, you look at your friend and he is running as fast as he can in the opposite direction so he doesn't get killed. And I'm like, and then Mahomes would like spin, he would like pivot and, you know, horizontal to the ground, throw a strike that gets dropped. And you're just like, this is a nightmare. He literally thinks he's still sleeping. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> so let's uh let's go to what are you reading right now? Let's start with Rich. I uh, just finished. Uh, shit, what's the title? It's uh, Clay McLeod. McLeod. I can't. Remember. I think that's his last name. Whisper. Oh, you know what? You guys go first. I'm gonna look it up. Brandon, what? You know what? I never go f- first, so I'll fuck it. I'll do uh, me. I am finishing up. Uh, I got a few, and I'm actually gonna cheat and go my Goodreads, so I don't fuck up titles. Um, you guys should know them. <laughs> No one's prepared here. Uh, so currently, right now, what I am reading. All right, I'll start with this one. Uh, I just started this yesterday. It's an audiobook. We need to do something about Max Booth the Third. I like it. It's I hate the dad in it. Total scumbag. But I think that's the point. Um, another book. One of those two uh, female authors I was talking about is by Dung uh, Dung G Gam Bepko. It's uh the book is called Glass Slipper Dreams Shattered. And it's just a bunch of flash pieces, uh, about 60 pages long. It's it's pretty powerful stuff. Let's do more books. I'm finishing up Clementine's Awakening by Jennifer Soucy. Uh Came out through Silver Shamrock and through a newer publisher, Off Limits Press, run by Samantha Koyeznik. Speaking of true crime, have you read that book, True Crime? No. No, oh, I haven't. Really- I have it. I just it, actually got it maybe like two weeks ago. It's uh, it's fucking good, man. It's one of the best books I read of last year. Rich Shizmar has left to get the book. I hope Sam is only because it's sitting right. Only because it's sitting right behind. <laughs> yep. See it. Yeah, I hope, I hope Sam is listening to this episode because uh, Rich just held your book up. That's very cool. So I'm reading uh, her publishing company, Offlands Press. Um, highly recommend that. Uh, publisher, if you're looking for a new publisher to read their books, uh, Heart Strange and Dreadful. It's by Tim McGregor, which comes out this Monday, I think. Is it this Monday, Brennan? It's, uh, I want to say it's the 15th, which I don't believe is Monday. Yeah, well, okay. It comes out the 15th of this month. Comes out next week. <laughs> it, it's neat. It's just, it, you know, it takes place in the early 1800s in uh, Rhode Island. Um, Guy comes to town on a horse, and the horse is not doing so hot. The guy's not doing so hot either, and a lot of bad shit happens. So I think that's a spoiler-free synopsis. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, pretty okay. light. All right, what are you reading there, Brian? Um, I am reading uh, – oh, see, now I forgot. I thought I was prepared. <laughs> I'm in Darkness, Shadows Breathe by Catherine Cavendish. Uh, really cool. I've read a lot of her her books, especially her Flame Tree stuff, and I think this is my favorite so far. It's it's really it's got this like attitude of paranoia that runs throughout. I'm like halfway through, and I have no idea what's going on, but like in that good way, where you know you you, you don't know what's happening, but you're drawn into it. So mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm excited to finish that, and I'm reading. Hayward's Revenge by Kaylin Lloyd. This is uh, the third in a series, um, and I I love this author. She's a uh, composer, guitarist, and uh, author from Wisconsin, I believe, and she uh, has this kind of lore, I guess. Um, she calls it like her Elders series, and it's these three immortal guys that are kind of spread throughout the world, and the trilogy is just kind of smaller, uh, usually paranormal related stories that bring these guys in to, uh, 
deal with these paranormal situations, but from like an um, almost cosmic-y standpoint. That sounds good. I'm reading. There, I just finished reading. Um, it's Whisper Down the Lane by Kay, Clay McLeod Chapman. Um, really good. It's uh, um, kind of the satanic panic back in the 80s mixed with, uh, you know, kind of comes back to haunt this guy in, in present day. And, and his last book before this, his previous book was called The Remaking. Um which was just as good. Uh, it, it kind of, yeah, I don't want. I don't even want to give a description because it'll give it away. But uh, yeah, I, I just discovered this guy probably in the last year, maybe nine months, and everything I've read from him is wonderful. But Whisper Down the Lane will be out, and let's see, it'll be out in April. But I just read the arc, and uh, next up, I'm gonna. Um, People are gonna say he's bragging, but I'm gonna read Billy Summers from King, which is is not due out until August. But I got an early scoop, so I uh, his book comes out two weeks before mine, so it'll be kind of neat to you know be in the bookstores with him. But uh, yeah, so he gave me an early peek at that. That's that's next. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I saw I saw Billy Summers just maybe I'm slow, but I saw it last week. I think I don't know. Time doesn't make yeah, sense anymore. Now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it piqued my interest. Um, we kind of covered this, but what are you currently working on? I mean, is there anything else, or did we already cover it? You're working on a lot. I know that. <laughs> yeah, no, you know what? You've kind of covered everything. I mean, I don't have – those are the big things that I have uh, lined up. You know, it'll be an interesting – from August until next February, having those two books come out will be an interesting time. Mm. And, um, you know, as for what's next, um, I don't know. You know, I might write a sequel to uh, Boogeyman. Um, cause it's definitely there if I want to, Ooh. um, and I've got a couple other ideas that are kicking around. I'm finishing up a script right now and some other stuff. So we'll see. I mean, Billy and I, my son and I still, we're going to write the sequel to uh, widow's point, which was the haunted lighthouse story we did. And, uh, um, you know, I, I was hoping we would do that, uh, over this long break. Cause he, he had come home for Thanksgiving break and stayed the whole time. But, uh, he he had other stuff going on. I had other stuff going on. So instead, I just I edited his book, which, uh, like I said, hopefully, hopefully he'll uh, he's got another pass or two to do on it, and then hopefully he'll get out there and sell it next summer. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, hey, where can people follow you? Um, I'm on Instagram, and I don't know what my thing is. <laughs> just <Richard. laughs> I think there's like an underscore in there somewhere, and I'm on uh, Facebook and I'm on Twitter. Those are my things, and I've you know I've actually got a website that people put together for me and did an awesome job. So richardchismar.com, and I, I'd like to start doing more there. You know, I think that'd be a cool place to kind of have, you know, whether it's like a little blog or you know something that that I can kind of just keep people up to date and and you know. I love the idea of, you know, you have this random thought and it's worth 300 words, throw it down. Whether people want to read it or not, leave it up to them and, and you know, go on. Same thing with, like, photographs and stuff. I think it would be cool to have a section just to do that. Nice. Four final thoughts. Audio listeners, I'm wearing a shirt that says, I think you guys can see it, Black Hills Press by uh, Shane Hawk. He's a indigenous writer, has uh, this one book out called Anoka. Um, more to come later this year from him, but check him out. ShaneHawk.com slash merch. You'll find some very cool shirts there. Uh, I plan on buying some more myself. Um, Brennan, any final thoughts on your end? No, I think we got it. Richard, any final thoughts on your end? 
No, I'm good, man. Thank you guys for asking me on. I had a had a blast. I haven't talked that I haven't talked that much in a while. <laughs> We're really appreciative of your time, man. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. And anyone that is curious for who's next after this episode, we got Tim McGregor. He'll be on the following Monday from this episode. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate you, listeners. Appreciate you as always. Deadhead space.